0: Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bizarre. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and a supporting sponsor of Aquafarm, the Bill Gannon College of Pharmacy. I have a couple quick updates to get to this, uh, I guess, the third week of November 2020. What a year. Uh, so let's go back to, to last week. On November 13th, the, the FDA approved Pembrolizumab for breast cancer. So first uh, Pembro approval for breast cancer, which means there are only three malignancies remaining uh, that Pembro has no approval, approval for a joke probably. Uh, now this is an accelerated approval of pembrolizumab in combination with chemo for previously untreated metastatic breast cancer or locally recurrent uh, and unresectable breast cancer. It's triple negative with pdl one expression greater than or equal to 10 percent of a composite proportion score. Okay. So again it's a it's a very uh, restricted indication not all breast cancer. Triple negative breast cancer uh, metastatic, has not been treated before in the metastatic setting, uh, and in high, high PD-L1 expression, of greater, than 10, greater than or equal to 10% composite uh, proportion score, CPS. Now, this is an accelerated approval that's based on progression-free survival, which we'll talk about. And it's based off of Keynote 355, which was presented at ASCO 2020, uh, not yet published yet that I can find. Patients were randomized 2-to-1 to Pembro plus chemo, or chemo alone. And chemo consists of either NAB paclitaxel 100 mg per meter squared, three weeks on, one week off. Uh, same NAB paclitaxel regimen from Impassion 130 and Impassion 131 with a map. Or paclitaxel 90 milligrams per meter squared, three weeks on, one week off. So not the 80 mg per meter squared weekly that we see in the adjuvant setting. Or um, carboplatin AUC2. Uh, and being a thousand milligrams per meter squared on days one and day fifteen of a three-week cycle, so two weeks on, one week off. So not necessarily, you know, the first-line uh, chemo you would use uh, for for these folks, but but still chemo. But you know, if somebody had previously untreated metastatic disease, had never received an anthracycline or taxane, we would probably use use that uh, in many patients. Although single-agent chemo is is not uh, inappropriate uh, if you look at the guidelines. Regardless of our control group of chemo alone, the the primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and I guess that's why this is an accelerated approval, uh, which is better than just approval off of overall response rate, but of course we'd like to see overall survival eventually. Uh, and the median progression-free survival was superior in the pembrolizumab arm. The, that median uh, was 9.7 months versus 5.6 in chemo. It's a hazard ratio of 0.65 with a confidence interval uh, stretching from 0.49 to 0.86. And that one-sided p-value is 0.0012, which means if there's a two-sided p-value, be 0.0024, so 12 to 24, from one-sided to two-sided. Now. This was not the original intention of this study. was just to look at this highly enriched PD-L1 positive population. We know from the ASCO abstract that in the entire population, the intention-to-treat population of all triple negative breast cancer, there were more than 800 patients, and that hazard ratio was 0.82 in favor of Pembro, but it wasn't tested, which tells you it wasn't clinically significant, I would say. If you look at the CPS uh, greater than or equal to 1%, which was over 600 patients, the hazard ratio was 074 P-value was not significant, but close. This looks to be an interim analysis or some alpha sharing in this. Um, and then the CPS greater than or equal to 10%. That's about 320 patients. What I'm, The current approval, the hazard ratio is 0.65. So if you looked at all triple negative breast cancer patients, you could say the risk for progression or death was 18% lower at any time with Pembro. If you look at CPS greater than or equal to 1%, that 18% improvement now becomes a 26% improvement. And if you just look at CPS rather than equal to 10%, the improvement is even greater uh, to 35% at any time uh, over the course of the study. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, uh, which is in the package insert for Pembro, you know that the curves separate pretty significantly after three months or after the first scan, uh, when you would expect that to happen. Um, And it stays, uh, stays nice and wide as it goes through. Uh, by, by two years, you know, you know, know, most patients, more than half, have progressed or died. We will, of course, have to wait to see. Uh, overall survival for this uh, will be key. Uh, it is an accelerated approval, so I do expect that we'll see overall survival prevent- presented. Not necessarily that Pembro will show overall survival benefit, but we, we will see uh, that data. We should, anyway. A little bit better uh, response rate, 53% versus 40% in the Pembro arm. Um, the median duration of response, for those who had a response, median of 19 months uh, with Pembro plus chemo versus 7 with chemo. So so pretty those that had a response tend to do really well. And we've seen that over and over again with, with checkpoint inhibitors and immunotherapy uh, in metastatic cancer. So first PEMBRA approval for breast cancer It's a highly enriched triple negative and very high PD-L1 expression, that composite proportion score greater than or equal to 10%. All right, So that's the only approval I have to talk about. Let's talk a little bit about CML, a disease we don't talk a ton about on this podcast, and I'm going to talk about the LAST <coughs> study, capital L, capital A, capital S, capital T, LAST, uh, which was published in JAMA on November 12th by Atala and colleagues. This was a prospective single-group, non-randomized trial. Why are we talking about a single-group, non-randomized trial? What can we learn from that? A little bit of information, some description here. It's basically a descriptive observational study. Now, these were 172 patients from 14 U.S. centers, uh, who stopped their TKI and they did so on an observational study. And this happened from December of 14 to December of 2016 and they were followed for at least three years and that's what we see. So even though they had to be on a TKI for at least three years to, to be followed on this study, most patients the median time on TKI was 82 months which is just under seven years. So these people were on TKIs for quite a while. So they had to have CML on treatment for at least three years uh, with either matinib, dasatinib, nilotinib, or basutinib. Uh, They had to have a a BCR-ABLE transcripts of less than 0.01% which is at least a four-log reduction or what we call MR4 and they had to have that molecular uh, response uh, for at least two years. Uh, And it's a four-log reduction because we say I'm going to go down by four logs starting from 100% We would assume these are able expression of 100% in CML, so from 100 to 10 is 1 log, to 1 is a a 2 log reduction, to 0.1 is a 3 log reduction, and 0.01% would be a 4 log reduction, and then of course no TKI resistance. So that's what these 172 patients were as far as their treatment. Uh, they didn't really break down which you know TK they had received uh, in in, uh, in, a, in the protocol and I, I didn't have access to the appendix for some reason. Uh, so 65 percent, let's call it two-thirds, kept their molecular response, MMR. Um, if BCR-ABLE was uh, detectable at the time they stopped this, so they had you know an MR4, so a four log reduction, but you could still find BCR-ABLE with your PCR, half of those patients, 14 of 28, uh, basically maintain their molecular remission. Now, if it was undetectable by traditional PCR, they did something called digital droplet PCR, Um, so if it was undetectable by one method and then they used a more sensitive method and they found it, then 64% of those folks uh, had recurrence. Uh, Now, the best long term remission rates, staying in remission after stopping a TKI, were in patients who had, they were undetectable by traditional PCR and undetectable BCR able transcripts by digital droplet PCR. Only 10% of those patients had recurrence, um, you know, uh, at least a year after stopping their TKI. So, uh, makes good sense that the deeper your response, the molecular response, the harder, the more and more we look for, it, if we use every available magnifying glass in the lab to look for bcr able transcripts and we can't find it in your CML patients, if they've been on for three years, that those are the patients that have the best chance of stopping their TKI and not having a recurrence of their CML, at least within a year, based on this study. Uh, they also collected patient-reported outcomes, or PROs, and what they found is after a year of these patients stopping their TKI, they had less fatigue less depression, less diarrhea, so maybe quite a few patients on bosutinib in this cohort, and better sleep, interestingly. Uh, so obviously, you know, some of these people can stop their TKI um, this is already in the Nelotinib package insert in our favorite guidelines, the, the criteria for stopping TKIs in CML patients. And better quality of life, it certainly seems. Uh, and of course, less financial toxicity. These drugs are, are really expensive, but you got to be on it for at least three years. So to be on it for at least three years, you got to be adherent to it, which brings us to the last study I'm going to talk about today, which was a paper uh, recently in the Journal of Oncology Pharmacy Practice, JOP. Um, from from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in uh, in uh, Seattle, uh, and this is looking at predictors of CML TKI adherence. Um, now, this was this is tough to describe. It was tough to read. It was very it was written very well, but very technically. Uh, so they did something called latent profile analysis, where they look at a whole population of folks and they try to find subpopulations based on different variables. All right, and so they started looking at this whole market scan database of, of patient profiles. Uh, and they had like 14,000 patients and they whittled that down to 2,000 after they removed people who say didn't have full uh, information or they lost insurance or, or whatever it would be. Uh, they end up with 2,000 patients and they identified four types of adherence patterns. Patients who were never adherent, patients who were initially not adherent but were becoming adherent, people who were initially adherent but becoming not adherent, and then stable adherent. And we would like everyone to to fit into that stable adherent category, because those are the folks that we know. If you're adherent to your to your TKI, you're less likely to have resistance, and that means you're more likely to be able to stay on your drug for three years and then maybe stop it uh, if the your molecular response uh, is that great and significant. So. Um, just going to get right to the main point here. Here were some of the predictors broadly of non-adherence uh, in any of the three non-adherent categories. So younger age, the younger these people were, they, see, they seemed to predict for non-adherence. Women, interestingly, over men. Uh, a short time um, from, from diagnosis to the first prescription. So actually... I think it was the longer the time went from diagnosis to the first prescription, those folks were more likely to be adherent. So it does make sense or does seem to predict adherence if as soon as they get diagnosed, they get on their TKI. And of course, a higher financial burden was associated with non-adherence makes a lot of sense. Uh, And then if they were on a non-imatinib TKI, so nilotinib or Desatinib were the only ones that were not imatinib in this data set, they were slightly more likely to be not adherent especially with nilotinib that uh, and that stood out to me and that could be because nilotinib was bid um uh, or it could be that maybe some of these folks got to be on generic imatinib i'm not sure when that came out uh with this uh, because that would then go along with financial toxicity uh, being a risk factor uh, for not adherence so just a couple quick updates uh this week um everyone hang in there 2020 is coming to a close good vaccine data uh coming out everyone uh, is excited uh just gotta gotta ramp it up and distribute that and get everyone to come back three weeks later for the next injection uh that vaccine so that's looking promising that's the silver lining uh in uh, november 2020 um oh, there's another silver line in november 2022 forget about that uh anyway Uh, Feel free to follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetna. Follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.